Hello and welcome to this episode of the Free Thought Podcast. This podcast is developed and operated by students at the Center for American Studies at the University of Southern Denmark. This podcast is set on discussing the United States, its fascinating culture, its intriguing political landscape, and its socioeconomic nature. We center on the United States' relations to itself and its interactions with the world around it. So, from all of us here at the Three Thought Podcast, we hope you'll enjoy the show. Today's episode, we discuss the post-presidential election of 2020, and today we are joined by our guest, Isaac Hewlett. Enjoy. All right. Well, now the election is finally over. It's uh, time to try and look back at it and see, well, what did we learn? Because this has been uh, somewhat confusing. I think uh, probably most fair that we start off uh, talking about the fact that this was not an election day. This was an election week. It's been a long process, uh, and I'm really interested to hear what you guys, th- guys think. Yeah, so should we uh, start with uh, talking about the, the election night as the first point, or even how the uh, how we approach the election night, uh, especially with all the polls and, and how we uh, try to anticipate who would win, and was there even a, a blue wave or a landslide victory to uh, to, to Biden, uh, I don't know if, if any of you have. I, I think it's interesting to sort of look at what you were sort of expecting out of the out- outcome of the election. I mean, I, I expected Biden to win, but I also expected him to win by a bigger margin, or at least in terms of votes. I mean, in terms of, of how many electoral college votes he got, it's pretty, it, it's pretty much a one where that, that, that doesn't really surprise me. Uh, but I did think that some of the key states that he, were, he won was going to be a lot more of a decisive week to beat, if you ask me. So I think we were surprised uh, in terms of how the polls were uh, wrong again this time, um, and actually quite sort of uh, even worse than 2016 in my eyes. We'll get to that later on in the show. Um, but again, I mean, throughout the entire sort of election cycle, leading up to it at least, we had heard about this red mirage and a, a later blue shift uh, sort of after election night. So we had actually anticipated this to play out as it did, um, but we seemed to forget that. And I think that had something to do with uh, Trump faring much better than we anticipated and him winning Florida and him doing well in the upper Midwest. Uh, You had him doing well in Ohio. So I think it looked worrisome to begin with, for Democrats at least, but then it changed uh, over time. And I think we just had to be patient for that to come. That was how we saw it play out. Yeah, I I think that's definitely true. Uh, but I also think that it's perhaps good to keep in mind that just as we were being prepared for this election week, for the long like the long haul, and for the red mirage and the blue shift, so too were all the Republican voters were being primed to 
you know, not uh, to, to really, you know, focus on the election day. They were always told, you know, oh, you can't, uh, you can't count on uh, mail-in ballots, you can't count on all this, and, and if we allow these things, there'll be all this uh, election fraud. So just as we were primed for the long haul, they were being primed for the opposite. So when they started celebrating and started being, you know, ecstatic on the day because it looked like Trump were winning, I think that's kind of what, you know, made, uh, could, could make those on the Democrat side very nervous all of a sudden because were this promised blue shift going to show and was it going to be allowed to come? How, what were they going to do to try and stop it? Right. So just to clarify for our listeners, what we're talking about is that uh, Republicans were heavily favored to vote in person on Election Day. And then you had Democrats who were more susceptible or likable or, you know, more sort of focused towards the mail-in ballot voting. And that's why you saw this fragmented picture of how votes were cast. Um, and I absolutely agree with Mikkel that I think Trump played a huge part in sort of making this fragmented picture of the of the election result because he campaigned. He had a relentless, you know, almost year-long campaign against mail-in ballots, and that played a huge role in leading his base of supporters to not, uh, you, you know, t- take use of the mail-in ballot option uh, and then rather sort of go physically into a mail mail place. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. Uh, do you think that it, ba- it backfired on Trump's campaign in general that he um, said to his voters that they shouldn't use the mail-in ballots? Or it's hard to say at this point. Um, again, it gave a sort of misconstrued picture on election night, and I don't know if he he would have had higher turnout if his voters would have uh, taken use of that option. Um, that's hard to say at this moment. Okay. I also think we have to look at how many people voted because there was a historic voter turnout. I mean, Trump got even more votes than he did in 2016, and Biden won the um, national votes with around 5 million votes. Yeah. So even if you look at it in that way, I don't I don't think Trump could have won if he sort of supported mail-in ballots, but it's impossible to say. Because the voter turnout this this year was extremely high, way higher than it usually is. But this has also been a year that we've seen a focus on the electoral process in a way that we haven't really in a long time. Because of the coronavirus, with so many being encouraged to vote by mail, but also because of we've seen so many political events, not just that you know, coronavirus has become a political issue rather than a healthcare issue, but also because we saw the George Floyd protest and the Black Lives Matter protests and, you know, the defund the police slogan became popular. And I think uh, one of the big things were really that we saw these kinds of events driving people to uh, to get registered to vote, uh, which is part of uh, what I think has increased the turnout in the way it has. And because of the closeness of the race in those key states that we saw on election night and the time it took to count ballots, uh, I felt it left us with sort of a, a feeling of something less than a total repudiation of Trump. Uh, and, and then math, mathemat- mathematically, it might as well have been uh, or ultimately have been a huge repudiation of him. Um, he lost by more than five million votes uh, against him, uh, against uh, Trump, in, or he won uh, with more than five million votes over Trump in the uh, popular vote. Obviously, that doesn't matter in American politics, but still, that, that, that's a huge turnout for Democrats. And the classical, traditional Republican strongholds, suburban voters, we'll get to that, 
they moved uh, strongly towards Trump or towards Biden's column, sorry. So, I mean, there were some dynamics that were very, very promising for Biden in that sense as well. But what I'm especially afraid of um, because of this dy- dynamic, how the election I played out is that the GOP, the Republican Party, seizes on this and creates a narrative that the, the, the election was stolen from their, them, that it was an un, unfair election and it was not sort of a valid result. They delegitimized the entire result. And Trump's base of support are not going to sort of go away because of this. They're going to get angrier. And we actually, and this growing anger is going to exacerbate, in my opinion. And it's worth remembering what happened in 2008 with Sarah Palin after her loss. I mean, she stoked, she began sort of stoking this, you know, the beginning of the Trump base, you can say. She didn't say that, or the Tea Party activists, as they were called back then, she didn't say that the, that, the, that the result was sort of invalid, but she said the establish, establishment is keeping us down and so on and so forth. And so she really tapped into this sort of visceral anger among the, uh, the, the, the reddest Republican base, you can say. And that became a real problem for Barack Obama leading into his, uh, his presidency. And it became a problem for the Republican establishment who actually lost that battle against their more sort of ardent uh, wing of, of, of supporters. And it, it was not easy for them to sort of push this passion away. And it actually changed the party and it made the party into Trump's party. So I think we're at that that moment right now in history. So we have to take that anger uh, really, really, really serious in my eyes. I think, I think you're definitely right. Uh, I think certainly that uh, the Republicans, especially in recent years, have become incredibly good at turning uh, losses into, you know, energy towards the next ele- uh, election. Like, we really see them dominate in midterm elections. And I think that's something the Democrats have been really bad at. And I think that that's uh, one of the things that can be very frustrating about them. I think also that is uh, here that it might be uh, interesting to look at uh, AOC, who recently came out and says, we have all these things now from the election, all these ways of helping us keep the energy up, keep the movement going. But I, the rest of the party has to cooperate with me and these movements to keep this momentum going into the midterm election. Otherwise, they want, they're going to see this backlash again. So they're already talking about how this could happen again. Yeah, just to put some numbers in, when Isaac, when you talked about that uh, it wasn't a repudiation of Trump, this uh, election, he got 10 million more votes than he did in 2016. Right. So it's basically almost a win for the Republicans to get that much voters out to vote for a Republican uh, yeah, president uh, candidate. Um, but still, when you look at how much, uh, who, how many people got out voting on the day, basically just see how many people voted with the mail-in ballots. Biden has what is it, 77 million votes right now, and they're still counting some votes. So basically, it's uh, it's quite amazing to see that even even though you have the COVID situation, you still have a historical election of uh, voter turnout in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, just if you think about it, if he had these uh, number of votes, I mean, Trump in 2016, he would have won the election. And the thing is that I actually believe the Republican Party have to sort of find themselves again because it has become sort of the party of Trump because they're not abandoning him at all. They're, they're supporting him even more. And, and I think Republicans have to think about what party is it and how do they move on from this? Because we will also go on later on how Trump basically took the defeat um, or how he refused to acknowledge his defeat. 
and and what Republicans are going to do about that because they are in a tough situation. But there was some extremely interesting election also like Georgia flipped to Democratic uh, Democratic since what was Bill Clinton? Yeah, yeah, 992. Yeah. And they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't win the... Nobody got uh, 50% of the votes in the Senate, so that's uh, going into a re-election. So that's where a lot of the effort is going from both the Democrats and also Republicans at the moment. Yeah, I also think that one of the things that created uh, a kind of false confidence for a lot of Democrats was the, the never-Trumpers they saw on TV every day. Like these Republicans who had, be, who had rejected Trump and his version of the party and who was always there, was always, you know, on CNN, on MSNBC, talking about all how terrible he was and how all these Republicans in the middle was just as frustrated. And they started believing that. They started thinking, all right, if we can just, you know, tap into that uh, voter base, those middle-seeking Republicans will win by a huge margin. But I don't think that that group was really there in the way that they saw it. There were certainly some, but there wasn't this huge, you know, 15, 20 million Republicans going, oh, we hate Trump. They, that's not how they saw these things. They, it, his, you know, behavior didn't matter to them in the way that it might have mattered to these never-Trumpers. The, it, what mattered to them was the, what he could deliver for them policy-wise. I have two things to that. So first, I think that uh, Trump's strength uh, and why Democrats sort of uh, overestimated his possible strength that, 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 that he showed during election night was that they sort of took Latino voters for granted. And we've taken African-American voters for granted as well. And we, ca- we haven't sort of conceptualized how Trumpism can appeal to them, despite it having some sort of cultural uh, cultural dynamics, some more sort of racial overtones or undertones, you could say, um, he was still able to appeal to these voters through an economic prism, in my opinion, you know, because of the how the economy looked prior to COVID-19. He sort of managed to pull some of these voters into his column. So he, in fact, activated people of color. And I think Democrats thought similar to what they did in 2016 that, you know, working class whites, they'll always be with us. They'll always be in our column. And that didn't show to be the case. Another thing in terms of what you mentioned, Miguel, is I kind of disagree to a certain extent because I think moderate suburban Republicans, you know, former Republicans, they came out in in historic numbers for Democrats. So they sort of they shifted uh, support over to his column. And that helped him uh, over the line during this uh, 2020 election, in my opinion. If you look at Milwaukee or sort of suburbs outside of Milwaukee, obviously, suburbs in Atlanta, suburbs in Arizona, for that sake. I mean, it was these suburban voters, along with African, African-American voters, who secured Biden, Biden his election. We'll come to that later when we discuss his coalition. Well, I absolutely agree with you that there certainly were Republican voters who were, you know, went for Biden instead. I, what, what my point was uh, more key toward was that the way that it was talked about in the media and the way these never-Trumpers and the Lincoln Project, and the right. way they talked yeah. about it, made them overestimate how many would actually go for, for Biden. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they were so, they became so confident that if they could just, you know, activate. appeal to yeah. these group people and activate them. Yeah. But even if they did hit some, and it was definitely suburban uh, white women especially, right. uh, but just because they got them out to vote doesn't mean that this is suddenly some new, you know, group who will support the, the rest of Biden's agenda. They will still be, you know, voting. Many of them are probably going to vote against him in the midterms and try and flip the House and the Senate. So, you know, counting on these people long term is 
certainly something the Democrats should worry worry about. So yeah, so I have a question actually for the both of you. Um, so you talked about this this. Um, it seems like a mirage that was created to sort of uh, tell, um, especially um, people who are not sure how to vote or who to vote for, that um, that even uh, moderate Republicans were agitated at how Trump was acting uh, on television and internationally and domestically. Um, do you think there's a trend sort of of, of creating sort of an, a naive uh, attitude towards uh, Republicans being fed up with with uh, with Trump and how he acts so that Democrats feel sort of secure that, okay, we're going to win this uh, election no matter what. Because we saw it in with Hillary. We saw the, the polls going, uh, oh, she has a 90% chance of winning some places. And don't, don't worry, Trump is never going to be president. Like any person like Trump is never going to be president. And even this time, we saw polls uh, favoring Biden immensely in some states where we were like, okay, so this is not the the real or the reality of the states on election night. So do you think there is a sort of a trend or a dangerous trend that maybe liberal media or places like CNN or the Washington Post or uh, New York Times that they are sort of hanging a trend of, of naive um, lib- I would say Democrat favoritism? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Uh, can you sort of yeah? Um, so so I mean, next time when we see the election, next time mm-hmm. would we see would we see the media sort of portraying Democrats as the favorites or the uh, the for mm-hmm. sure winners of the election? Just like from the get go, that the Republicans because I've even heard that some some uh, liberal uh, uh, analytics saying that okay if. If the Democrats win this time, they also said it with Hillary. Mm-hmm. If the Democrats win this time, we would, like, sometimes not even see a Republican in the future because the Democrats were the party of the future and the Republicans were sort of, um, they, they were, their voter base was getting smaller and, and their, their ideas mm-hmm. were getting outdated. This was the time for progressives. and I definitely don't think that'll be the case. No? Uh, both there's a there's a b- bunch of different factors that you should point to. Obviously, the polls and what we sort of uh, what we put into how much weight we put into the polls and the validity of these polls that'll change. We'll get to that later in the episode. Right. Um, but then I also think the special election, the runoff election, these two uh, Senate elections that we have in January in Atlanta or in Georgia, sorry, that'll sort of de- sort of determine what the uh, balance of power will be in the Senate. And that'll also show us whether this coalition of voters, these suburban moderate Republicans that move over to Biden's column, whether they are a consistent and cohesive coalition. I mean, if they are, if they simply just came together for one night in November to sort of beat Trump, if it's just an anti-Trump coalition, or if, if Democrats are tapping into something much broader and much more sort of long-term, uh, yeah. I would also say, um, in terms of this aspect, that I don't think Biden did the same mistakes as Hillary did, because even on sort of election day, he was out campaigning. He knew that he had, he couldn't give up because he knew it, it shouldn't be like a 2016 again. I think Hillary in 2016, she was way too con- confident in that she was going to win. Like there was some sort of leaks or what you would say talks behind the scene that she even popped the champagne early and she didn't even have a concession speech because she was absolutely sure that she was going to win. I actually think Biden, he knew that he could not risk 
Trump winning again. However, when that's said, I still think this should be a lesson for Democrats because even though they won the presidency, they lost several seats in the House. They, um, they did not win back the Senate, even though there was, what, two-thirds of the we, seat? We don't know that yet. That's true, that's but true. George has still up for grabs, but was it uh, one more, isn't it? There's no, two, two elections, yeah, two special election and a runoff election. Exactly. But even then, it'll still be only be 50-50. But my point is still that two-thirds of the seats up for re-election were Republican seats and one-third right. was yeah. Democrats. Absolutely. So they had a huge opportunity to win the Senate. Plus which we, a, sorry to interrupt. There's no. just a bunch of uh, vulnerable Republican sort of incumbents who were running for re-election. It, so you're absolutely right that they were sort of vulnerable going into the 2020 election. Exactly. What what I think is when we talk about the, the polls, and it might be a good segue to the polls, is the polls was way too off compared to what they should have been. Like Wisconsin is, in my opinion, the best example. Biden was showed to win about an average of about 11%. He won with under 1% of the votes. That's a huge discrepancy. That's like 10%. Well, let's dive deep into the polls now, because I think... Those are definitely one of the biggest factors in how people were, you know, how people were expecting this uh, election to turn out. Because after 2016, uh, there was all these pollsters who came out and were like, "Oh, we see now that we made mistakes here and here. We'll try and correct it. We'll try and you know fine tune our our formulas. Uh, and ne- the next time we're gonna get it right. We're gonna be right on the money." And well, as you said earlier. This time it was perhaps even more inaccurate than last time. So I think it might be worth, you know, considering, you know, why are these polls so wrong? Uh, and I think the biggest factor in that is probably how they, you know, gather these the information for these polls. Because one of the big problems last time was, uh, well, uh, that one of the things that have been a big problem was that uh, the people who got calls, you know, to get polled were people with a landline which is, you know, not really that common among younger people. <laughs> that's a, that's very much a, a retiree age uh, thing these days. Uh, and I think that was a big problem. And now they've, you know, moved on and tried new avenues. But one of the things that we've really seen pop up is uh, <coughs> online polls, where people are, you know, voluntarily, you know, deciding do I want to participate in this, which I think is, you know, an obvious, uh, like holds obvious risk in skewing who takes these polls? Because if you see a poll here by, you know, tweeted out or, you know, posted uh, by one of, uh, you know, the organizations that you trust, that you think are, you know, on your side, so to say, you're more likely to say, oh, I'll participate in that. Right. And I think that's perhaps a big risk that there's been a lot of people who are like, oh, I'll I'll support this poll. Uh, And then, you know, there's been others who are, you know, not uh, as enthused about that polling com- uh, polling group who's been like, no, I don't want to participate in that, which is very much skewed the polls, I could imagine. Right. Yeah, so the major uh, mistake that we that we all made or polls made, uh, pollsters made in 2016 was that they didn't give enough weight or representation to these white working class voters who showed up uh, in various or switch, shifted towards uh, Trump's column in very large numbers in the 2016 election. Uh, so they tried to give more weight to these uh, demographic groups, and um, that's why I really believe that there's no excuses this year. That's what that's what makes it even more worse for pollsters mm-hmm. that they were so so wrong um, because they tried to sort of adjust the methodology of how you conduct polling, um, and and we still sort of hit completely wrong. Uh, I think there's two important explanations for this. Obviously. 
we're still sort of looking at the dead body. We have to sort of uh, give it some time to make the autopsy of the mm -hmm. entire election outcome. But I think that there's three important factors that I'd like to point to. One is that these white working class voters that we are uh, attempting to reach, they tend to not be as sort of um, politically active as some demographic or democratic groups can be, democratic sort of coalition groups can be. And therefore, you get a skewed picture of who is you know, answering these polls, it's typically more sort of politically part active, um, active Americans, and that tends to be Democrats. Uh, obviously, you have active members of the Republican Party, but still, these white working class voters tend to not answer these polls or answer their phone and their landlines, as Mikkel mentioned. Plus, I also think there's another important factor, and that is that um, you had this long, long campaign from Trump's side to delegitimize all of the people who conduct polls. CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, Edison Research Institute. I mean, all of these media institutions who create polls, he has raised a campaign against them and said they were the enemy of the people. Does that have an influence on whether his base of supporters choose to answer these polls? Or do, did 2016, did that outcome even have an, uh, an impact on how they perceive polls? I think that's something that we will be discussing a lot more in the coming years. I have a question. Do you think they focused more on the white working class group and they, to some extent, forgot to, to talk to the uh, Latino voters that Trump got, uh, got out to vote? Definitely. As I mentioned before, I think they, I mean, Democrats as well as media institutions and sort of general sort of yeah, people observing or looking at the election, they underestimated the ability for Trump to appeal to minority groups. Yeah. Um, so that might have uh, played a role in how sort of polls were conducted. Definitely. That might be the case. Yeah. I think one of the groups that could really swing these things and that I think uh, the pollsters definitely risk uh, not accounting for is certainly both Latinos, but also other immigrant groups who don't use English as their first language. Like these groups who, you know, they don't uh, like see or hear about these polls, you know, in English and go, oh, I'll just fill that out. You know, if they're if their main language is in Spanish and they only speak halt, uh, like really halting English, why would they, you know, feel comfortable talking to these people in English and filling out these things in English? And the same thing where you can uh, look at the Asian voters. Asian voters has increasingly been a group that has been targeted by both uh, Democrats and uh, Republicans. Especially, uh, there was a lot of success for Democrats, uh, both this election and uh, also uh, back in uh, 2018 uh, in Texas, for Democrats to in turning out Asian voters. Uh, so I think these, these are definitely voter groups that are harder to poll than the regular uh, white Americans, um, but also, you know, voter groups that could potentially be incredibly important in the future. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So should we um, should we move on to sort of talk like um, so who particularly voted for the what, what like Biden and who voted for Trump? So sure. the like the biggest voter base for for Biden was a coalition, as you said, of uh, especially suburban uh, area, white suburban areas. Yeah. Uh, and uh, African American. Specifically, uh, specifically uh, working class and middle class African-American voters were, were the coalition that kept Biden uh, in the lead and, and secured him his victory. So on Trump's side, who were the specific like specifically what was the largest voter base that that voted for Trump? 
I mean, the overwhelming uh, majority of Republican voters are still white. Yeah. Uh, that must be sort of underlined, I believe. Uh, he managed to make some inroads uh, among Latino Americans, Latino voters. Right. And it's worth sort of saying maybe even Hispanic voters or uh, dissecting this group because it is a very diverse demographic group. As we spoke about earlier, there's a sp- particular area uh, in the state of Florida, a county called Miami-Dade County, which was uh, critical in his sort of uh, surge in Florida and his ability to win Florida. You have a lot of Cuban-Americans there and uh, Venezuelan-Americans there. And as you may all be familiar with, Trump has sort of raged against these communist states, communist countries uh, around the world. So they heavily favor, uh, I mean, Republican policies when it comes to communism and socialism and such. So, I mean, it is a diverse group, and you have sort of Nicaraguans that also support President Trump. Um, so, I mean, I'm, as I mentioned before, I mean, he ha- he managed to pick up Latino voters, some African-American voters, but not to a large extent, but more than we expected that he was able to because we see him as sort of such a racially charged or racially divisive uh, politician. But I also think it's worth looking at some other metrics for, you know, what Latino voters went out. We definitely saw a, a larger percentage of older Latinos who went for Trump, which is, you know, exactly in line with what we see in, you know, uh, among white voters and among African-American voters, that is often the elder voters who go for the Republican Party for Trump. Uh, And we also saw that it was heavily the very religious Catholic Latinos who went for Trump, who, you know, he was uh, finally putting on this justice who might uh, end up uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, which was very attractive to a lot of Catholics. So I think there's definitely uh, also uh, both a religious and a, a an age uh, demographic that that's worth uh, considering. And it's also worth uh, saying that, I mean, he did incredibly well with his classical base of support, you know, white working class voters. I mean, he he activated new workers or voters among these white working class voters. So, I mean, he did really, really well in those very rural conservative areas where, I mean, the whole argument of Biden was that you had sort of average Scranton Joe, you know, that could appeal to these right. uh, northern industrial Midwest states, uh, these working class working class voters. But he didn't make that many inroads there. I mean, he did actually quite bad with those uh, with those uh, demographic groups. So, I mean, his uh, victories uh, and D- Donald Trump's defeats in the industrial Midwest, you know, these blue wall states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, which he managed to flip back to the Democratic column, that was partly or mainly due to African-American turnout as well as these suburban voters. So that's sort of Biden's coalition of voters, in my opinion, as well as more traditional Democratic voters, very liberal voters. But Trump, I mean, he assembled a very, very fascinating group of of voters, I believe. It's not as monotone as it has been prior to 2020. He, you know, added these minority groups to the composition. That's quite fascinating. Right. I think we we shouldn't be surprised at all that, uh, you know, the the working class uh, black people in America really were, you know, the ones who came out big time. We see uh, the rate of unionization amongst uh, black workers are far higher than amongst white workers. So we see that they are, in many ways, much more politically minded, much more uh, democratically leaning, uh, just in their average, you know, on an average day. I mean, they are more activated in many ways than so many other groups. Right. Sorry. Yeah, I just have a question. Because when looking at back in, what was it, the summer with the George Floyd, and what happened with him and all the things that happened after and how 
Trump didn't go in and support the black Americans um, and ha- and seeing what happened after with the for example the NBA going in and try to get everyone out to vote and really uh, was uh, speaking loud about this and also a lot of uh, other celebrities in the US also talked about this could you say that Trump lost his chance to shift some of these uh, African American voter uh, African American voters to his side um, well, I mean, he managed to appeal to some of them, as I mentioned, through how the economy was, that he was a good steward of the economy prior to COVID-19. And the same goes for Latinos. I mean, I think he, if you look at sort of Trump's economic populism and how like the historic unemployment rates were very, very low, that appealed to those uh, groups. But I mean, I don't think that uh, that those voters were up for grabs for Trump in that sense. Many of the people who support Black Lives Matter and watch the NBA they're sort of steadfastly sort of cemented in the Democratic uh, camp. I would that would be my take at least. I also think uh, Democrats really need to have the discussion. What uh, if this Black Lives Matter movement here in 2020 was one of the reasons why so many African Americans went out to vote, or is it because that Biden appealed to them? Because of course Biden does have some appeal to African American voters since he was the vice president on Obama. But at the same time, there's also some African American voters who doesn't really support him. Um, in terms that he supported the crime bill in the 90s, it was had a huge impact on African-American families and especially African-American men sent to jail. So I really think Democrats need to focus on African-Americans, to not just lose them again and sort of uh, they don't go out to vote again in the uh, next election, either it's midterm or the next presidential election, because it's a huge voter block for them. And they really need to appeal to them, not just when... There's like a person as Trump in the White House that is pretty much despised by the African-American community. We also need to do it when it's a more moderate Republican if we want to continue having these mm. African-American coalitions. I also think uh, one of the things that uh, is, is really worth uh, considering and looking at is that Democrats very much made this a referendum on Trump, on his behavior, on who he was mm. as a person. Uh, and it was not as successful as they probably hoped. Uh, and I think that's one of the big things that's definitely worth discussing for them in the future. Can you really make uh, like do a campaigning that relies so much on the op- on you know just we gotta kill the opposition, we gotta destroy the opposition? That might you know have worked occasionally for the Republicans, but that's not really something that excites the Democratic base in the same way. And I also think that uh, looking at, you know, other places, uh, other results in this election, that those Democratic uh, Democrats in the House and in the Senate who were very focused in their campaigns on issues, on actually, you know, standing for things, not just against Trump, were those who did far better than those who mainly focused on being opposing to Trump. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I yeah, think I just know. to add to that. So I, I think you're absolutely right, Miguel. And I think Democrats uh, sort of risk disappointing their electorate or their group of uh, voters because they've had so much focus. You know, Biden was never going to be a progressive no. politician. No. He's never going to appoint progressive cabinet members. Uh, he might have some. Uh, he might listen to a little bit of the demographic or the sorry, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. But I don't think that he'll have a focus on progressive visionary policy ideas, as you alluded to. I think his his entire sort of 
idea or theory of governing is this national reconciliation, that he will be sort of the consoler in chief that unites the country and pursues policy goals that are more sort of broad based and more sort of broadly consensus oriented, which is going to be a huge challenge, as you all know. We can discuss that in a, in a later episode because, I mean, the Republican Party has a whole different sort of approach to governing and they'll have an entirely different approach to Biden. And Washington has changed tremendously since he was last in power. So, yeah. And also to add what you're saying. Biden is an extremely moderate candidate. And he have even been talking about, and I don't want to go into what his presidency will be because that's basic speculation at the moment, but he had been talking about that he might have some Republicans in his, in his cabinet. And that's pretty unheard of in modern American politics because of the huge partisanship. So for Biden to sort of uh, appeal to the progressive um, wing of the party can be difficult because he is very moderate and he wants on this, let's unite the country again. Um, and I, I think Democrats, they are in many ways just as split as Republicans in, in this area. And there's also one thing that's important to note in terms of Trump and Republicans. Tr- Trump was extremely much a Republican president. Like when you look at his policy, he, he didn't go that far away from a normal Republican policy. But most people think that he's so extreme and you have never seen this before. Yeah, his wording and the way he expresses it, especially his tweets and his press conference, that's pretty unheard of in American politics. But his policy is basically just Republican down the line. Um, expanding on uh, Biden's being a moderate, I think uh, there was a leak recently about uh, his internal memo to his transition team about what would be his like focus for the first two years of his presidency says a lot about him. And those were three things. Climate change, mm-hmm. containing the, uh, the coronavirus, and cutting taxes. We basically have like the three big things there. Like cutting taxes, that is very much a Republican thing. It has been a Democratic thing too somewhat. But in more recent years, it has become increasingly unpopular uh, amongst Democrats. Uh, containing the coronavirus, that's very much a you know moderate thing. That's very much a, look, now we have some competent leadership. That's more of a uniting the country thing. And I think only really his climate change policy is his one, you know, it's his one uh, you know, concession to pro- progressives. And even then, it's something that's become so broadly uh, popular that it's not even that progressive anymore. No, that's a very good point. And I think, uh, you, I mean, you're right in that sense that, I mean, the the entire like coronavirus focus as well as the economic focus has been wrongly approached by the Democratic Party, in my opinion. They haven't managed to frame it, it in a way that, I mean, it might be complex for voters to understand. Uh, we have maybe taken it for, for granted that they would understand this, but the economy can't come up and and sort of start roaring as, as it did before corona, uh, before you sort of tackle the public health issue at hand or sort of facing us. Uh, and I think that a lot of Republican voters, especially these black voters and Latino voters, they saw Trump as a better steward of the economy because how it looked prior to COVID. And they see Biden as a less sort of a, less good steward of the economy because he has this more sort of public health approach. But they have to tie these two things together because either or won't work, if that makes sense. Like if you don't tackle... If you do national lockdowns, you'll hamper the economy. Yeah. And if you just let it rip, uh, the economy won't be able to get up and running again. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about how Trump managed to handle the economy before uh, COVID and then 
going into uh, presidential debates and so on, and then Trump getting infected with COVID. Do any of you think that that was a way for, or one of the key issues that Trump lost the election on because he wasn't able to talk as much as uh, about the economy after uh, he, uh, he got uh, infected with corona. So he needed to talk even more about one of the issues that he didn't want to talk about during these uh, presidential debates. It, it didn't help him. Uh, and I think the biggest thing about him getting COVID was that it made him look even more um, anti-empathetic. Empathetic, uh, like, he didn't have any empathy at all, especially towards he was playing this strong man, like, oh, I'm defeating it, and nobody has seen anybody recover as fast as I am, and so on. And it looked like people who have actually known people who have had corona or have died of corona, it seems like he didn't take it serious, and... But, but he didn't really care about it. He just wanted to look strong. But I actually don't think it's it's COVID that was the biggest um, hit for, for Trump in this presidential election. I actually think it was his tax returns. The fact that he only paid like $750 in what was 2016. Yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. 16 and 17. 16 and yeah. 17. I think that hit a lot of Americans that I'm middle class. I'm working class. I pay more tax in, in a year than this billionaire does. I think that hit him a lot harder than COVID did. I think his conduct and his rhetoric scared a lot of these suburban uh, white women away, which were crucial, as we've talked about. I mean, those were sort of a, a classical coalition demographic group that had always been in the Republican Party. I mean, they had had, you know, uh, you know suburban strongholds nationwide, decades, decades, decades. But now we're seeing them move over to the Democratic column. And interestingly, as we might get to later in terms of the congressional elections, they managed to vote sort of red down ballot. So they stayed with Republican candidates down ballot. But at the very top, they voted for Biden because he ran a campaign on national reconciliation. He ran a campaign on decency, on sort of creating the more ordinary, typical image of the presidency, restoring sort of dignity to the office, as he would say, um, I think that was more decisive than the tax returns. I think us, you know, high information observers, people who read the New York Times, they are shocked about it. But, I mean, white working class voters, they stayed in Trump's column. That's true. I think uh, perhaps we should uh, start moving on to uh, some of the post-election drama that Definitely, we've seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think first and foremost, uh, the obvious thing to bring up is, of course, Trump's legal challenges yep. to the uh, results. Uh, we've, of course, had uh, Republican protesters out chanting both stop the vote and count the votes, uh, depending on state. <laughs> it's been uh, it's been, uh, been confusing and uh, in- interesting to watch uh, the uh, how uh, they could, you know, intellectually contain both ends uh, without, uh, you know, at, you know, admitting the hypocrisy of it. <laughs> but yeah, they have uh, been very successful at that, apparently. <laughs> well, but, it, uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Well, it even started on election night where he came out and said that he won the election. And everybody who understands how the system works and with the mail-in ballots, we knew that there was millions of votes that hadn't been counted, but was going to be mostly Democratic because he won a campaign of don't vote in mail-in ballot, <clears throat> while Joe Biden did win a campaign on mail-in ballots. So already on the election night, he was like he was saying that he won the election, and the day after he started talking about that he won the legal vote. 
and the Democrats only win if they count the illegal vote. What hell that means, nobody really knows except Trump, but it is a way to for him to say that he did not lose the election, he actually won it. Yeah, so actually even before the election night, he had run sort of a relentless campaign against uh against sort of the validity of the result. He wanted to have a result on election night, and if it prolonged after that, then it had to be election fraud, right? Uh, and he called out that if we lose this election, I mean, there's a there's a clip of him during a rally, I believe, in Michigan, where he says this, you know, if we lose the result, or if we if we lose the election, then the result is invalid, you know, then it's, then it's because of fraud, actually, he said. So he had been sort of having this relentless campaign against it, and in my opinion, We have to take this with a grain of salt. I don't believe that we're seeing a coup in the U.S. You never know with Trump. We have to sort of still take him seriously, uh, but not literally or, or, or vice versa in that sense. Uh, but I mean, I think he's just simply carrying a, a PR-minded uh, voter fraud investigation out to have something to latch onto and to have an explanation that makes it easier for him, you know, to sort of maneuver himself out without coming out publicly and saying, you know, I've lost. We've never seen him do that. And he comes from a family, the Trump family. His father taught him how to sort of approach loss and always sort of seek seek the win and call out the win no matter what. I mean, never lose your face in that sense. So it's just a way for him to sort of delegitimize the result and thereby, you know, um, hold on to his brand, I believe. One of the big things that he then did was that he kept saying that, oh, if we can't w- win, you know, with the vote, we're gonna win in the courts. And he's always always been a, a guy who's been very proud of his uh, history in the courts. Uh, <laughs> he has touted a lot of, uh, of suing a lot of people uh, and how successful he is at that. Um, but the interesting thing is that that's fallen flat on his face. Like of the first ten mm-hmm. uh, big uh, lawsuits that they filed. All ten of them has by now been dismissed. Some managed to get through uh, the first round, only to be struck down in appellate court. Some have, you know, gotten only partially through. Or uh, uh, the biggest one, uh, the one, the most successful one, was where he basically got uh, another law, uh, another judge to confirm what a previous judge had already said before the election. I mean, this has not been a success for him at all in the courts. Despite him, you know, keep he's he's kept up this rhetoric that any day now it'll go all the way to the Supreme Court and they'll rule in his favor and he'll win. Well, when speculating about what Trump's motive is, is always difficult because it's Trump and he's unpredictable. But I actually kind of disagree a little bit with uh, Isaac in in the terms that I don't I actually think he he wants to try to win the election, and and I do think that he is trying. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's no way he, yes, Coop is going to be successful. I don't think that's going to happen at all. But I actually think he is trying to do that. And the th- again, speculation, there are some things people talking about that he's scared of leaving the White House because then he doesn't have presidential immunity and people can start suing him for all the money he owes. Again, back to the tax return, he is a huge debt. And the problem for me is not that much that Trump is trying to stay in the White House because he's not going to be successful. There's no evidence on this voter fraud that he keeps on claiming. The problem for me is that this rhetoric he's using is dangerous in a in a um, in a democracy. He's undermining the entire democratic system, and there's no way he can win this. But it means that there's a lot of these hardcore Trump supporters that actually believe everything he says, and they will believe that the election was stolen. And that is a dangerous situation when a lot of people, like millions of people, believe that the election was stolen and the democracy doesn't even work. 
well, as you also said, Barbara, I think it's a scary cocktail that happened when Trump went out after the election night saying he won and stopped, stopped the count in Pennsylvania and so on, but keep counting in Arizona and Nevada and so on. And he managed to to talk to his voter base and his voter base actually went out and demonstrated saying stop the count in Pennsylvania and in Michigan and Wisconsin and so on and seeing how how some of his voters has acted before and how he talks now I think it's a really dangerous cocktail in the US society at the moment also in Arizona that's one of the fun things as you mentioned before that they were yelling, stop the count in Pennsylvania and so on. But in Arizona, they, they went out to the polls and, and yelled, oh, no, not the, the um, what's called uh, count, uh, counting, and yelled, count the votes, which is kind of ironic because that's what they're doing. But that was because he was behind in Arizona. So yeah. for many people, it's not about um, Trump versus Biden who will win. It's about Trump should be reelected. Yeah. I think uh, overall, the while he may have lost in votes and he may have lost these court cases, in the end, a lot of what he's been doing has been about uh, ach- achieving a PR victory. Like, he has kept his image intact amongst his voter base. Mm-hmm. They still believe in him. They still believe in what he represents. And I think that's been his big victory. Because even though he might be out delegitimizing democracy and, you know, undermining a lot of uh, the very, you know, values and norms that have built America, that doesn't matter to him because who he is and what what he represents to his voters is intact and that is a powerful base for him to continue to wield power. Yeah, I think Miguel is absolutely right that I mean it's super dangerous for the American sort of public discourse that you have 70 70 million Americans who don't believe in the system, who don't trust the election outcome and Biden, this is going to sort of have detrimental implications for the years to come. And I completely agree with you, Baba. I mean, it's going to impact sort of the governing ability for the Biden administration. And it's going to sort of poison the internal conversation in the GOP, in the Republican Party. You already see this playing out in Atlanta or Georgia, sorry, once again, where you have these two elections in January. And the entire Republican Party are sort of in lockstep with Donald Trump because they want to maintain the energy, the enthusiasm of the the Trumpist base, right? Which is the Republican base. That's who they need to hold on to. It shows he has tremendous sway over the party. And adding to that, he has a television network, the highest rated network in the United States, who is on his side. Obviously, you have the you know, daily, uh, daylight news news channels or news shows, which are more sort of, how do you say, um, uh, sort of um, restrained in their approach to Donald mm-hmm. Trump. But then you have the night shows where they're sort of regurgitating his talking points and holding on to this anger, holding on to this fury, which again goes back to what I talked about, about the, uh, the Tea Party activists and Sarah Palin after the 2008 election. I mean, this is going to sort of continue and exacerbate polarization in the U.S., and it's going to exacerbate or sort of have implications on the transition of power, which we're already seeing now, right? I mean, the Trump administration does not want to concede and, and, and hand over power yet. And this is a months-long process, mm-hmm. right, which will let Biden come into the fold in terms of intelligence briefings, getting, getting into the fold of governing the biggest democracy in the world, right? So, I mean, it has huge implications. Yeah, I think, I think all around this table knew that 
the Trump voter, voter base would still vote for Trump even though he went out killed someone somebody as uh, some uh, some media talked about in uh, 2016 that he could do whatever he wanted and his voter base would still vote for him that he bragged himself he said yeah, it himself exactly um, so I think that seeing his voter base and seeing what happened with the blue shift was probably the most um, what can you say dangerous thing that could happen within the US because you have some of these militias in for example Michigan that are in the Trump voter base and looking before the election one of these militias actually tried to kidnap the governor of Michigan yeah. like it's just a dangerous cocktail and seeing in Georgia would, which is a deep south uh, state and didn't uh, went to the Democratic Party before or, or uh, yeah, before in 1992 right. or, or hasn't uh, since, uh, since, hasn't yeah, since uh, since 92 I just think that this blue shift was as some of us has talked about before it's just the most dangerous thing that could happen within the US and how the whole US uh, or the US as a whole would be perceived until January 20th. Yeah, as, as you were talking about uh, with the blue shift, that was my nightmare scenario from before the election started. I really feared that was going to be a blue shift because I knew that Trump wouldn't accept the result and I also knew that a lot of his supporters wouldn't believe it because when you do not understand the system and when suddenly huge lead in all of these states for Trump and when it's just flipped for Biden over the past day. If you don't understand it, I can't see how it looks sort of suspicious. But if you do understand it, it was kind of, it was predicted. And and my biggest fear is, as you talked about with the Tea Party movement uh, back in 2008-2012. It was after 2008, the election. Yeah, yeah. That Sarah Palin. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. And there's a new movement which is even more dangerous in my opinion. This is what I fear. It's the QAnon a conspiracy movement which basically believes that Trump has some kind of secret code works telling to his supporters. And I believe they could actually do a real physical threat to some people in America. I mean, there was even some QAnon supporters who went, I think it was Pennsylvania, they went to some uh, counting uh, ballot places with guns and the police arrested them because they I don't know if we're going to make a terror, terror attack or we're going to tr- um, make a threat to the people counting they're, they're the votes. threatening them. Yeah. This is dangerous. And 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 I honestly I honestly think that, that in the coming months, maybe even years, Biden has a tough, tough case to unite this country. Just yeah. to add to what you just said, I mean, or bring some hopefulness to this debate, <laughs> this sort of uh, really dreadful uh, talk. I think that Democrats have learned a little bit about the, how the conservative movement operates, and they did so during the Obama years. Um, and I think that they understand that these are not merely just fringy groups. I mean, we've considered QAnon fringy for some time, but you see it sort of gaining more traction mm-hmm. among the American public and even here in Denmark as well. So, I mean, I think they understand that these are not merely just you know fringy voices on the outskirts of the Republican Party they'll understand that they need to take them seriously. And that goes even for Fox News as well, who I think you downplayed, you downplayed their influence in the Obama years. And now you understand that they sort of, they managed to help elect a president, right? And a man who's orchestrating that anger and fervor right now. I think one group that certainly shouldn't be forgotten, that played a huge part in in maintaining the Trump base, 
uh, is the alt right, and uh, even its you know and its continual development. Because it's always, it, it's from the very beginning been very controversial, you know, some people believing that this was like an extreme right group. But we've seen that a lot of their ideas and a lot of their ways of talking has become increasingly common. And it, especially uh, with uh, the, you know, rise to prominence of the groups like the Proud Boys has certainly seen, you know, this very militant take on, you know, the republicanism that has really risen up and become popular. And especially now uh, in the wake of the election, that is... Be- coming very dangerous because they had uh, sort of the Proud Boys had sort of tried to soften their image they'd had a, a man who was uh, I think he was uh, I think he was ha- Samoan or something like that yeah he was, he was a person of color who had uh, become their, their leader Cuban yeah something like that yeah, yeah. and uh, and he was um, he, he very much you know was out there saying oh no you know he, he, he used the, the you know dog whistles that they used talking about Western culture instead of white culture and stuff like that. But he was because he was not a white man and because he was using this coded language, he made them seem very uh, very much more agreeable than they perhaps had come off previously. Uh, this election has in many ways already started putting a stop to that. Because we already seen the previous leader of the Proud Boys basically going out and say, "Oh, we don't need a sock puppet to talk for us anymore. Right. We can go. We can take the mask off now, or put the hood on, or whatever you want to call it." Uh, but so they they are very much you know saying very much angry about this election, and they are ready to go out and be violent. Yeah, definitely. So we are running into like the uh, the hour of the podcast uh, or an hour long podcast, and 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 I know that we can all talk about this for <laughs> I don't know how long, but there could Days. be no end to it. Yeah. Should um, we end on a, on a on a quick ray of hope? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We I think a... that we should talk maybe about about like how our expectations, but also the the. I would say, like, the hope of, of going into the, I think into the, the future. The big one to, to, to talk about is, of course, all the progressive victories. Right, right. That's the big one. Uh, we've seen uh, the squad, all of them, re-elected. Despite Can you elaborate on the, the squad? squad being yeah. uh, AOC, Ilhan Omar, uh, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. Extremely progressive. Extremely progressive women uh, right. who were elected two years ago. They've all been re-elected. Right. Despite, especially against AOC and uh, Ilhan Omar, very harsh campaigns. Right. But all of them were comfortably re-elected. And in fact, we've seen four more uh, people in the same mold as them be elected, uh, especially led by Jamal Bowman, who, like AOC, uh, was uh, able to outcompete a, a very powerful incumbent in the Democratic Party uh, in New York. Uh, and they are very much uh, coming to join, uh, meaning we are doubling the size of this squad. Plus, we've seen that in all the competitive House races, where a Democrat has really been chal- uh, substantially challenged by a Republican, all of those who won were the ones who supported Medicare for All, who were su- uh, many of them also supportive of the Green New Deal. Right. Meanwhile, those who flatly rejected those proposals uh, were the ones who were defeated. So we've really seen that these are not just, you know, fringe ideas uh, of the progressive party, uh, progressive wing of the party. This is increasingly important for voters. If you want them to turn out, you have to support these kinds of things. Right. Well, another positive note is that the U.S. has uh, voted for their first or has elected their first uh, female vice president. Yeah, that's and black. Yeah, and black. Yeah, yeah, and Asian. Yeah, black Asian. Black Asian. All the boxes. Yeah. So So that's also quite a win for all minorities in the U.S. as as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that's a positive note. Also, looking back at what happened in 2016 with Trump winning against 
uh, Hillary. So, so yeah. So yeah, and yeah, as I said, this was my nightmare scenario, and I have maybe been a little more negative than some of the other people here. But I will also sort of say that this idea that some people are talking about might be a civil war, that's not going to happen. There's no way way that's going to happen. And on a positive note, especially with Biden, is that he's going to get back into the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, and he is actually going to fight for some kind of climate change, um, uh, yeah, progressive support in some way where uh, Trump were completely going uh, away from it, which from a global perspective is a huge win for um, for the climate change. Plus, I feel like you've seen Biden on the campaign stump do what we've seen in Denmark, as uh, de, you know, social democrats did, mm-hmm. where they adopted some of DF's policies. You've seen Biden do this with some right. of the economic policies that Trump played on. He has a Buy American initiative, right? That you want to sort of buy, uh, pro- uh, sort of American-produced stuff and have it sort of assembled in the American or on the American continent. You've also seen him do this Build Back Better initiatives. So he's sort of adopting some of these economic populist uh, policies that Trump played on. And I think that might sort of help him down the line, hopefully. Um, and maybe it'll lead sort of Republicans to work across the aisle because you have so many working class Americans or low income Americans who want to see their sort of prosperity sort of grow. Um, that is promising. And at the same time, he's held sort of the underlying cultural dynamics at bay. He doesn't want to adopt those. Obviously, he's very much against those. But uh, I think that's somewhat promising. I don't uh, want to give a promising, rosy picture of him working with <laughs> Republicans because I've spent the better half of my sort of bachelor understanding the Republican Party and understanding sort of Trump's party, you could say. And I don't see them work, working mm-hmm. across the aisle, despite him having 48 years of experience with these uh, these Republican officials. Right. Yeah, and I think uh, another really good sign was uh, the down-ballot measures. The, the propositions that were on the ballot that individual states voted about, uh, which included mm-hmm. four new states that completely uh, legalized recreational marijuana, and even Mississippi uh, legalizing medical marijuana, which means that now uh, a majority of states has actually uh, legalized uh, or at least decriminalized marijuana. Yeah. Uh, plus, the big one, uh, the really big one, at least for progressives, was that in Florida, mm-hmm. despite going to Trump, they voted for an, uh, they voted for a $15 minimum wage. So over the next, I think it's six years, they'll slowly be increasing by about a dollar and a half a year until uh, I think it was 2026 that they, they were supposed to be at $15 minimum wage. But just to nuance a little bit of what we're talking about in terms of congressional elections and Senate elections, you saw something quite fascinating in this election, and that was you saw a lot of split ticket voters. So on the entire ballot in America, you have both everything from sort of town council to the president. I mean, you have down ballot, up ballot, you have all different types of candidates. And a lot of Republicans voted for Biden because they're sort of dissatisfied with the president's conduct and rhetoric. Um, But then you also saw these um, particular voters vote for Republican candidates down the ballot, which is not very promising in terms of it being a consistent and cohesive and sort of long-term coalition that that Biden assembled. But but it shows us that, that sort of he was able to, you know, swing these over to his column because they were dissatisfied with the president's rhetoric. And I'm afraid that that might be an early indication that this win was simply an anti-Trump vote. Yeah. All right. So, yes, we're, we're going to be ending this podcast on 
a, a potential hopeful note <laughs> in, in a sense uh, and we're going to move um, like this is not going to be the last podcast ever it's going to be a lot of podcasts uh, going into the future and we're going to talk about a lot of topics which is going to be I would say a little more stable now that Trump is maybe not in the picture anymore and <laughs> and and Twitter can be put on a shelf and uh, but but we're definitely going to keep this up and and today we're going to leave on a hopeful note So I just want to say thank you to all of you for being here and um, we're going to catch you on the next one.